Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Great. Awesome. <laughs> Zach, how you doing this morning? Good, good. Yeah, can't complain. Uh, and we're up and recording. I see that. Good. So we can just get this little banter. I just got done feasting. I had four, I just ate four pounds of steak and I, and I had a couple pounds of yogurt to follow it. You know, we had snake diet man on the other day. So I've been trying, uh, I've been trying these, uh, feasts and then 48 hour fasts just for fun. So I did, I did my first one on, uh, what is today? Monday. So, so, uh, was it Friday? When was I eating? No, Saturday. I guess I ate Saturday morning and I did the same thing. I had four pounds of steak and about four pounds of yogurt and I was like stuffed. I mean, I couldn't even move. I was miserable for about four hours and then it kind of got better and then I didn't eat, you know, for 48 hours. And I came and did it again today. It's not so bad. Now I'm good. I just, I'm, I'm like, I totally feel okay. I'm not full. I'm not like bloated. I'm not uncomfortable. I got like seven pounds of food in my belly, like as of about 20 minutes ago. <laughs> I thought I'm maybe you were check, checking out that approach because n- normally when I see your, your meal roll through, it's like a couple of ribeyes, sometimes three. Yeah. And then there was also four or five. <laughs> <laughs> So it's just an experiment. So anyway, fun stuff. Jamie, thank you. On so you're you are Doctor Fit and is it Fit and Fab or Fit and Fabulous? I can't remember which Dr. one. Doctor Fit and Fabulous. Fit and Fabulous. Yeah, I saw. I started seeing you on my feet a while ago, and I was checking out. And you are fit. You are fit, and I'm sure you're pretty fabulous too. But uh, <laughs> so you are in. If I'm not mistaken, you're like in Oklahoma or something like that. Is that right? I'm in Omaha, Nebraska. Oh, Omaha. I knew it was oh. Omaha. We're close. I mean, Omaha. I've been to Omaha. I've been off at Air Force Base one time. Yeah. I spent right there when I was in a military guy. But uh, so that's the home of the College World Series for those people that don't know that. But anyway, and coming up in a week. And you're and you're OB/GYN, right? Obstetrician. Yes. Are you OB? Are you still doing the OB part of it? Because I know a lot of obstetricians say, "The heck with that. I'm tired of getting up in the middle of the morning and middle of the night and delivering babies." Are you, Are you still doing that stuff? Yes, I have a full obstetrics practice, low-risk, high-risk pregnancies, and a full gynecology practice. So I just had just did surgery this morning. It, good. Well, thank you for coming on, and, and thanks for taking the time. So let's, uh, tell, so let's tell us a little bit about your background, and then we can start asking some questions and stuff, because I think you've got some good stuff. Yeah. So I'm born and raised in Nebraska. I am a former college athlete, so I played for the, for the Cornhuskers, Go Big Red. I played uh, softball there. And I got a degree in nutrition and exercise science. And then after I left undergrad, I went to medical school, um, still here in Nebraska. And I got married and I had three pregnancies during medical school and then my OBGYN residency. And during my pregnancies, I failed all my glucose testing and then found out after my third daughter was born that I had prediabetes. And from the outside, Anybody looking at me would have never, I, there would be not one doctor that would look at me and say, gosh, I bet this girl has prediabetes. The only reason I even asked for screening was because I had failed this glucose testing and I come from a family of 
people who don't look like they have diabetes, but genetically clearly have a lot of insulin resistance. My dad's a type two diabetic, but he's also a former like pro football player. So this was like really eye opening for me. I had postpartum hypothyroidism and now here I am with an A1C that's pre-diabetic. And so I thought, this is, this is horrible, right? I'm a doctor. I'm an OBGYN. Like I should know how to take care of this. So my husband and I kind of looked each other in the face and said, listen, we have to really make our health a priority. And so we kind of tried lots of different dietary modifications. We tried Whole30, we tried Paleo, um, and eventually we just settled on the ketogenic diet about two and a half years ago, and then predominantly carnivore in November. And it's just been kind of a journey of self-experimentation, but on a very personal level, you know, I'm like the best body composition I've ever been. I've completely reversed all of the biomarkers that were totally out of whack. And from a women's health perspective, you know, I take care of a lot of patients with very similar issues, insulin resistance, estrogen dominance. And so I really started to incorporate it into my practice and with my background in nutrition, you know, I'm, I'm very passionate about preventative medicine. And then just last year, I started an integrative medicine fellowship through the University of Arizona. So I'll be dual board certified next year. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, we're seeing, you know, because my, my background is orthopedic surgery and, and, you know, nutrition really doesn't, there's not much we think about in nutrition when it comes to orthopedics. I even, when I go through the textbooks, you know, it's, it's, it, there's almost nothing whatsoever with regard to how nutrition impacts disease, but clearly it does. And, you know, I think there are folks that are, you know, the general practitioners and the internal medicine guys and some of the cardiologists, they kind of get into that more. But when we get into these subspecialties, it's kind of like almost an afterthought because you're so, you know, particularly when you get into surgical fields, because it's so much about the procedures and, you know, and, and you know how it is. It's just, you're navigating how to get your patient to the OR and all, and all that stuff. And the nutrition is kind of that's so far back in the, in the, in the background, you know, and of course it's always nice to have a patient that's not got an albumin of on the floor and, you know, everything and, you know, renal, renal failure and all the other crap that goes with that. But so, so how have you, how have you been implementing in your practice and what kind of, uh, what kind of patients are you, I guess that's what I want to ask because, you know, again, you, you, you deal with most, I would assume all women in your practice. Uh, and, um, one of the things we hear about women is, you know, women can't do low carbohydrate diets or women will see that their hormones will crash or their thyroids will tank. Uh, how are you dealing with that? Or what are you seeing with regard to that? If you've, if you've implemented it with your patients? Yeah. So you touched on a good point and not that, you know, subspecialists can't address dietary modifications, but even, you know, as what we would be considered primary care, the way that our medical system is set up, it's not set up to talk to people about dietary modifications. It's like the number one treatment for everything. But in a 10, 15 minute clinical visit, there's no way that I can explain to people, you know, what they need to eat and how they can fix their problems. And so it is an, it is an important strategy for me, but a lot of times it's sending people with information. I also do online consulting to really actually help people with the dietary modifications because it's just not time effective in my own clinical practice. Um, but what I see with women is, yes, you brought up some very good points. So I've heard numerous times your hormones will crash, your thyroid will crash, like this isn't a good, good diet for women. So on a personal level, I say walk the walk, talk the talk. So I've done enough self-experimentation with myself to see how my own body responds, but I also strongly believe that people need to be their own experts. So everybody will respond differently. But in the general sense, there is no way that humans 
require the number of carbohydrates that the standard American diet provides. So whether you are insulin sensitive or not, um, we still overconsume way too many carbs and, and mostly garbage. It's just synthetic. It's not even real food. It contains all this other, you know, fortified vitamins that don't even get absorbed the way, you know, the bioavailability and things like that. So now for my patients that are, you know, truly insulin resistant, yes, we get baseline labs and we follow their labs. So what's been interesting looking at thyroid function is everyone tells you you need carbs for thyroid function. And when you look at the studies that have been done on people eating a ketogenic diet, um, you know, I think Dr. Finney has done some of the biggest ones, Yancey, a couple other papers that I've pulled. And although we see a reduction in free T3, which is your active thyroid hormone, which I've seen in, in myself as well, we don't really see a concomitant rise in TSH. So even if their free T3 is on the lower end of normal, you know, maybe it's 2.1, 2.2, their TSH doesn't rise and none of them are having hypothyroid symptoms. And so, you know, there's a couple different theories out there as to why this may be. Is it, you know, decreased output of T4 from the thyroid? Is it decreased conversion of T4 to T3? Or is it a new thyroid sensitivity? So just like we have a, you know, better insulin sensitivity, like it would be silly to tell a diabetic to just eat carbs so that your pancreas will make more insulin, right? So why are we telling people eat more carbs so that your thyroid will put out more T3? If you have you know, adequate T3 levels without symptoms, I don't really, you know, see the issue there. So it's something that we, you know, definitely follow. If they're having hypothyroidism symptoms, you know, then we need to look into it. And, you know, maybe there are, there are certain patients that may need supplementation. And in my practice, I use desiccated thyroid, um, you know, which comes from pigs. Um, I don't use synthetic, you know, Synthroid or T4, but there are some patients that may need supplementation, but that's something that we watch. On a, from a hormonal standpoint, a lot of these women who are insulin resistant, they're obese, they have extra body fat, and almost all of them are very what we call estrogen dominant. So our, our fat cells are actually an endocrine organ. They're not just sitting there taking up space in our subcutaneous tissue and, and around our organs, but they're an actual endocrine organ. And so they aromatized hormones like testosterone into estradiol. And so these women have excessive amounts of estrogen. And so what we see is that a lot of their estrogen dominant symptoms tend to get reversed as some of that adipose tissue comes off with weight loss. Now that's the other thing with thyroid, just to circle back to thyroid for a second, is that weight loss by itself, caloric restriction by itself, we see a reduction in thyroid function. So I think sometimes it's very difficult when you're looking at a patient that's, you know, trying to lose a hundred pounds and they get the first 20, 30, 40 pounds off to look at their thyroid and, and not believe that part of that is just from their, their weight loss too, which is why you need to follow it over time. You can't just go off one number. Yeah, I think that's, I think those are a couple of good points. I, you know, I do think that we see almost probably across the board, the increased uh, receptor sensitization as you you know, like you pointed out, where, where we talk about insulin resistance is bad, but we don't talk about thyroid resistance. We don't talk about, you know, sex hormone resistance. We don't talk about, you know, probably, you know, a bunch of these other things out there that probably do exist. And so we're kind of seeing that as we really step away from the, the standard American diet, which all of our, you know, all of our biomarkers are based upon that we're starting to see some outliers. And, you know, rather than knee jerk reaction, let's, let's put you on uh, replacement let's see what's going on clinically. I think that's, you know, that's what, you know, the art of medicine is about instead of the, 
sort of the cookie cutter, you know, uh, you know, guideline type stuff where, you, where everything's based on a guideline or, or in a lab value rather than actually looking at seeing what's going on with the patients. Um, you know, that's the other thing we start to see that it's kind of a new phenomenon, you know, you know, cause if we look at male fat, fat distribution patterns, you know, you see the guys with the big guts and, and the women tend to store around the, you know, the hips and thighs, but now we start to see a lot more women with, with you know, they call it the muffin top or whatever. They got the big, you know, they got the big beer belly as well. And so I just have to think that's gotta be something new to our, you know, to our food supply perhaps. Are you seeing, are you seeing a lot of women with, with that particular physique or physiology and, uh, uh, are you having success with those gals getting getting those bellies down? Yeah. So typically what you're talking about is when you see this man with this like big rotund gut, right? It doesn't look squishy. It just looks like hard and firm, but it's really large. And what that is, is deposition of, of adipose tissue around the visceral organs. So that's visceral fat, which is the more dangerous fat to have than, you know, what's on your, your hips and thighs. And we typically see that distribution change in women when they go through menopause. So we start to see an increase in visceral fat deposition after they go through menopause. But you're exactly right. In people with metabolic type syndromes, obesity, inflammation, hyperinsulinemia, we, we tend to see a lot more visceral fat. Um, and it does, it does come down um, in these patients. I have a lot of patients that will follow with like in-body scans and things like that, that attempt to measure that visceral fat. You know, there's really not a great way unless you're getting you know, repeated DEXA scans, but even just using, you know, simple measures like waist circumference, we're definitely see, seeing a decrease in this, this dangerous type of adiposity. Let me, uh, I'm trying to think what I was going to, what I was going to ask there. Are you seeing, um, you know, I mean, I guess in your practice, you think like seeing, seeing things like PCOS, infertility. I mean, I don't know if you're seeing that or dealing with that. Are you finding that those things are responsive to diet. Oh, this is the thing I wanted to bring up. So I was looking at a study recently where it showed, you know, where women have this, you know, fat deposition around the hips and thighs, and a lot of them have cellulite, which they hate. We're also seeing when we biopsy that particular tissue, for some reason, that tends to preference polyunsaturated fats, which I think is an interesting, I don't know if you've ever seen that paper, but there's a paper on that that, that, that was, it came out probably 10, 15 years ago, but it's, it's very interesting to see that you know, you know, because women, all women, you know, they hate having cellulite and, you know, their, their fat always goes around there. But it's very interesting to see that that fat there tends to be high in polyunsaturated fats, which I think is just an interesting phenomenon. No, I have not read that paper, so you'll have to send it to me. But we know, I mean, the, the fat distribution in women is completely different. Women's bodies were designed to perpetuate our species. They were designed to reproduce and, and make children. And so a lot of that fat distribution is so that the body can easily mobilize those energy sources to grow, you know, a fetus and to eventually breastfeed that, that uh, child for, you know, a year or two after the birth. And so we definitely see the patterns of weight loss are different in women too. So they tend to, um, they tend to mobilize um, the, the lower body source first and then followed by the upper body. Yeah. Cellulite's a hard one. You know, some of that is just, um, genetics, some of it's due to the, the structure in the subcutaneous tissue. Um, yeah, that's a hard one for women because even people with a normal body mass index and normal body fat, we see cellulite. So people just have to get over it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just wonder, I wonder how much of those omega-6 we've been putting into the diet. I don't know. Did women have cellulite 200 years ago? I don't know. I, you, I, it's hard to get pictures of back then. I just wonder if that's right. kind of a new phenomenon since we've had all this seed oil in the diet. It'd be interesting, you know, just an interesting theory out there. But let me ask you because, you know, so it sounds like you're seeing both pregnant women and then you're also seeing the menopausal age. Is that correct? Yes, both. 
so what, what it, you know, how does a woman get healthy for pregnancy, get fertile? And then, and then at the same time, what do we do with menopause as we, you know, are we doing hormone replacement? How do you approach those particular groups? So when we, when we look at women across the lifespan, you know, a girl will go through certain stages of sexual development. And so once they go through what we call puberty, they start having a menstrual cycle and they transition into their fertile years, which is where ovulation is occurring. And we see kind of cycling of both estrogen and progesterone. There are lots of different things. Specifically, we think about things like PCOS um, that can drive some of these hormone imbalances and drive infertility in these patients. And for, for polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is a, a horrible name for the disease because it's essentially, you know, um, insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia, um, the number one treatment for that is low carbon ketogenic diet. And I've seen some amazing results in my PCOS patients. You know, there's, there's definitely studies out there. There's small studies, but you can see some big changes in people that restrict the carbohydrates, reverse their insulin resistance, and a lot of them will start ovulating again. And one of the studies, one of the female participants actually got pregnant in the study and she had previously reported infertility. And so restoring that ovulation is essentially restoring their hormone balance. I tell people, specifically women, that you need to use your menstrual cycle like a vital sign. If you are not menstruating on a regular 28 to 32 day cycle, there's likely a hormone imbalance and you need to get, you know, you need to get assessed and get things checked out to figure out what's going on. So then the woman progresses through these years, you know, has her children breastfeeds, or maybe she doesn't. And then she enters what we call perimenopause. Perimenopause is basically reverse puberty. So all those awful changes she had to go through as a teenager, now she has to come back out of them. And this is where the patients are presenting to my clinic with horrible complaints, hot flashes, night sweats, um, more depression, more anxiety, sleep disturbances, and people that tend to be a little bit more metabolically broken tend to be way more symptomatic, it seems like. And so during these perimenopausal years, um, yeah, we're checking hormones pretty frequently. I do use hormone replacement in my clinic, bioidenticals, you know, whether it's transdermal, sublingual, or with um, subdermal pellet therapy, um, but definitely it is something I use. It can, you know, the ovaries are essentially shutting down, um, which is basically putting the entire burden on the adrenal glands to make any amount of, of estrogen and testosterone. And for a lot of these people, they've been taxing their adrenals for many years. <laughs> and um, it's not uncommon for me to see, you know, estrogen levels of zero in these patients and testosterone levels for that matter. Now, um, I don't take care of men, but like low testosterone is becoming, you know, an issue too. We're starting to see more men going through andropause at, at much, much earlier ages. I've just been mind blown because patients will tell me, you know, my husband's 36 and he has low testosterone. It's just crazy. Jamie, along the lines of uh, kind of the variances between men and women with, with diet and specifically the kind of the ketogenic or high fat, low carb diet, you know, one question or comment I'll see pop up, uh, basically since I've kind of been in that world was that you know, it's different for men versus women to, to adapt to a ketogenic diet or to kind of get used to ketogenic diet. And then sometimes they'll get, go as far as to say, it just doesn't work for women. It's like, okay, this is a great diet for men, maybe not so much for women. And that's always been kind of interesting to me because my thought from just like uh, the way we're kind of designed or evolved is that like, you know, if you're, if you're a woman, you have the chance of getting pregnant and barring modern society, 
you might find yourself in a position where you're pregnant and there's scarcity of food, which would tell me that you would almost need to be better at burning fat if you're a woman than a man. Am I kind of on the right track with that? Or what, are, what do you see in terms of things that you maybe have to do differently with, the, with your women patients? Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. Because, you know, when we look at what is the additional caloric need of somebody that's pregnant? Um, there are some studies that even, you know, I think 300 gets thrown around a lot, but really I've seen studies even as low as 75 additional calories per day. So it's not that much. The body is very good at finding the resources. You know, it will find the calcium, it will find the fat. Um, its sole purpose is to grow that child. Um, I've even seen patients that don't gain any weight during the pregnancy. They have adequately grown children. And so the idea that we need excessive amounts of, of nutritional intake, now we need additional nutrients, but not necessarily you know, calories. Um, I actually take care of a lot of women that eat low carbon pregnancy. And I know that's a controversial topic out there you know, in the community as well, um, because the, the recommendation is a minimum of 150 carbs for pregnancy, which nobody can really come up with the arithmetic for how they came up with that number. They took the minimum glucose need for the mom's brain and for the baby's brain, and then just like added 75 to it. So, but I would say most of my patients, you know, aren't necessarily ketogenic, but definitely lower carb. They probably consume anywhere between 50 and 125 carbs, which for a lot of them is not going to be a, a state of ketosis. Um, but yes, I, there are definite women are not men. We know that. And when you look at the studies, you see far more studies on men than on women because they're very difficult to study because they don't have a steady state physiology when you're talking about hormone balance. And so I, I do think it's a little bit different for women. I think we need to acknowledge that their biology is a little bit more complex. Um, you know, for instance, me personally, I find that so there's two phases of the menstrual cycle. There's the follicular phase where you're actually getting an egg ready to be released. And then there's something called the luteal phase. And that's where your body is secreting higher amounts of progesterone to possibly support this, this possible pregnancy that may happen. Um, we see changes in fat burning during those two weeks. So when you're, when you're higher in estrogen, um, women can do more high intensity interval training. They tend to have better appetite suppression their metabolism tends to be a little bit higher. When your progesterone phase or luteal phase, they tend to have far more cravings. They don't recover as well. Um, and so when you're talking about a ketogenic diet, um, sometimes it can be difficult because women may go through two weeks of feeling good and then two weeks of, oh, this isn't working for me. It must be the diet. And it's really just these hormonal fluctuations that are happening during their normal cycle. Let me talk, let me transition into one of my favorite topics is in its stake, but um, I want to, I want to ask you about uh, iron deficiency anemia, because that's another one that we see that is pretty common, particularly in the female population, particularly, you know, because they've got a menstrual cycle and they're losing, you know, potentially losing more blood than men's typically do. Do you see, do you see anemia being a big problem in the practice and, and how do you, how do you deal with that if you see it? So I don't see a ton of anemia in female patients, but I think, I think women in general, you know, tend to eat less meat, you know, specifically red meat. I find that a lot because I do 24 hour, you know, dietary recalls in all of my patients. And so I think that women tend to just consume, you know, less iron and then yes, they're menstruating, there's iron loss. I think we probably encounter patients that have broken, you know, um, guts and broken microbiomes and the dysbiosis in their gut can inhibit iron absorption. And so sometimes it can be a gut issue as well. 
um, in my training, I actually saw far more, and we took care of um, different populations, and I actually probably saw just as equal amounts of like things like thalassemia than iron deficiency anemia. But no, it, it is a problem in women, specifically if they have estrogen dominance and they have really heavy periods, people with like large fibroids um, or abnormal uterine bleeding. I mean, it really can become an issue with iron deficiency. Yeah, let me, let me ask you about fibroids because that's another interesting topic and I get asked about it quite a bit. And I, and I you know, my thought is it probably responds to uh, hyperinsulinemia. You know, I think we see that insulin makes kind of everything grow. It's kind of like a fertilizer for stuff that, you know, makes our bellies grow. It makes skin tags grow. It makes lipomas grow. I mean, are you seeing any relationship? Are you aware of any relationship with fi uh, uterine fibroids and, and insulin status? So, yeah, no, that's super interesting. Um, I do agree, probably because we see more growth factors, insulin-like growth factor. The other thing that can really feed fibroids is estrogen, so estrogen-dominant patients. And part of that is because estrogen is kind of a use-it-and-lose-it hormone, so we don't want estrogen circulating in our system, and we definitely don't want estrogen being reabsorbed, like, through the um, hepatobiliary uh, circulation. So basically when you have estrogen in your tissue, it goes to the liver to be detoxified and estrogen gets broken down into to three metabolites, 2-OH, 4-OH, and 16-OH. 16-OH is a proliferative estrogen metabolite. And so when you have excess estrogen, there's, even if it's a set percent, let's say 8% of all your estrogen is get converted into 16-OH, you know, um, we're going to see more proliferation of tissues. So that's once again, another growth factor. Um, and so, yeah, I completely agree that, you know, now to say, could we put a patient with fibroids on a ketogenic diet and see shrinkage of their fibroids? I don't know what, you know, I don't think that that's ever been looked at, but certainly for estrogen dominant symptoms, when you fix the amount of total estrogen, and the way that that estrogen gets metabolized in their liver, you know, we definitely see correction of a lot of those symptoms. That's an interesting thought. There is, there is definitely a genetic component to fibroids. Like, you know, we see them more amongst African-American women, um, but, and you know, 80% of women develop a fibroid in their lifetime. Did women have fibroids 150, 200 years ago? That would be interesting, I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing, you know, because we, we see all these old guys with uh, BPH, you know, by benign prosthetic hypertrophy. And, and again, I think that's, you know, uh, my, my, my suspicion is it's probably, you know, chronic dietary abuse is probably leads to that more than anything else. And whether it's insulin or, or some sex hormone that's just leading. Well, I think the same thing. I think high insulin and high estrogen, um, you know, I, I think it might have been Eric Westman one time I was listening to a, a podcast he was on and he said BPH is like the male PCOS. And I'm like, that's really interesting. <laughs> I mean, that's an interesting way to think about it. Yeah, and it's kind of like uh, you think of it as, an, as a guy, once you hit 70, I mean, it's, I don't know what percent, it's some ridiculous percentage, like, you know, 80% of the guys at 70, right. they, can't, they, can't, they can't finish peeing anymore because their damn prostate's so swollen up. But let's talk a little bit about exercise because I think that's a big part of it. And, you know, I, you know watching your stuff on Instagram, I mean, you're, you're in there killing it in the gym. You're, you know, you're, you're nice and lean, strong. What, what do women need to be, uh, what do women need to be doing? I mean, should we tell them to get out there and, and do aerobics or what, what are your thoughts on what, what women should do exercise wise? So I think we need more women doing resistance training. I think women are afraid of the gyms. They're afraid of the weightlifting equipment because no one's ever taught them how to use it. It's very intimidating in a lot of gyms because there's these young 20 something year old guys with giant biceps, you know, over there, over there lifting and using the equipment. So I think that we need to have more people doing resistance training. And it's really 
for a lot of different reasons. Um, number one, well, a lot of people ask how I got results. And I said, my always response is meat and weights. That's always my response. But um, we, we reach our, our peak body mass, like in our 20s and 30s. And then after that, after every decade of our life, we lose some of that lean body mass, unless you are absolutely working every single day to maintain, you know, or, or maybe grow that lean body mass. So when I work with my clients, particularly my women who are entering perimenopause, I tell them when you go through menopause, you're going to see this giant shift. You're going to start losing your lean body mass very rapidly. And you're going to start seeing increase in your, in your free fat mass. And so we do that by doing two things. Number one, eating dietary protein and actually doing resistance training. So we need to actually have our brain tell our bicep that we still need it. And so we need to be putting stress on those muscles. And that's not going to jazzercise and flailing our arms and legs around. And I'm not making fun of jazzercise. I think all exercise is great. But I think that women need to be doing more resistance training to see some of these changes in their body composition. And they're not going to get big and, and muscly and manly like a lot of people are afraid of. Um, now, certainly the ability to build lean body mass and muscle, there is a, you know, a genetic component. Some people build it better than others, but um, women cannot be afraid of weights anymore. We, we need to, not, not only our muscles, but our connective tissue, our bones, you know, that is one of the greatest ways to prevent osteopenia and osteoporosis as we age, which is another risk factor they go through when they go through menopause and lose their estrogen. So women need to start start putting some stress on their bodies. Um, and it needs to happen at a younger age, not when it's not when it's too late and they're sarcopenic. Do you, Jamie, normally recommend when women get to some of the, like to be perimenopausal to increase their protein intake? And do you kind of have a, like a baseline where it's like, this is kind of a number you should be shooting for? Yeah, you know, people ask me that all the time. Well, how much protein should I eat? If I can convince them to start, you know, doing, I personally eat about a gram per pound of body weight, which for me is like around 160 grams. For some women, that's going to be too much, especially if they're not working out or doing resistance training. But I think, you know, I think even at like point, I think point 0.8 is probably a good number, you know, and I've looked at the literature, some of the exercise science literature and things like that. Um, I, you know, there's all these people that are like, well, you don't want to consume too much protein. And that's one of the biggest problems with the ketogenic diet. When I get clients that come to me, they're usually way under consuming protein. And when we increase that protein and drop their fat a little bit for women, especially they, they tend to see better results. So there's so many people out there that are trying to eat a ketogenic diet and they're under consuming protein. And they're thinking that just adding extra fat into their diet is what puts them into ketosis or something. And it's not good from a body composition standpoint. And the studies, you know, that have been done on the ketogenic diet and these epileptic children, a lot of them were underweight and malnourished, and they're trying to get these kids to a therapeutic level of ketones. That's a medical ketogenic diet. For most people that are wanting body composition changes, they need to consume more protein than that. And they may see a small insulin, you know, release. I mean, Sean clearly eats a lot of protein too, but it's the insulogenic effect of some of those amino acids is nothing in comparison to carbohydrates. Yeah, it's interesting. I know like when I'm working with uh, kind of my coaching clients who are doing mostly endurance sports, uh, you know, I'm always kind of coaching them through like, well, what, this is the ketogenic diet from a therapeutic use. And this is, this is how you kind of introduce that lifestyle component. It's like when you're working with someone who's got say type two diabetes or epileptic seizures, you know, that's a different target goal than someone trying to, 
you know, run a race or something like that. And then the, the lifestyle has to play a big role in kind of how you structure some of that. So um, I wanted to talk as well a bit about something you've been posting about on Instagram a bit in the last week or so. And it, it, it worked out perfectly because we actually just had Rob Wolf on the show and we did a bit of a dive into electrolyte consumption within the ketogenic diet and kind of where some misconceptions are with that because people tend to cling to kind of the requirement or the fear mongering around sodium amongst the traditional medicine or traditional nutrition. And they don't always recognize that there's a shift going on when you're switching your diet to a degree such as with a ketogenic diet. So can you talk to us a bit about kind of the role of sodium and potassium within some of your clients doing a higher fat diet? Yeah. So this is a great example of where people have taken traditional, you know, scientific or nutritional research and try to apply it to people eating a ketogenic diet. It happens over and over and over again. You know, when you're not looking at studies that have somebody with a ketogenic, you know, physiology, you can't just take that literature and apply it to, to their physiology. So when people eat ketogenic low carb, they have different electrolyte requirements. Um, so sodium has gotten, you know, a bad rap, just like fat did for a number of years, because we wanted to blame it for all the things that insulin and sugar were doing in the standard American diet. So when you eat a ketogenic diet and you keep your insulin level low, we see sodium loss in the kidneys. And so you need to consume more sodium. So I have my clients liberally salt their foods using real salt, like Himalayan Celtic. I use Redmond real salt. And the potassium, you want sodium and potassium essentially to be in balance. Now, if you're eating you know, meat, there's potassium in meat. Um, maybe if they're ketogenic, you know, avocados or, or leafy greens, there's definitely other potassium sources. But sometimes just to prevent them from getting the quote unquote, ketogenic flu symptoms, sometimes I will have them just use an electrolyte supplement that contains sodium, potassium, and magnesium. Magnesium is another one that's, that's way under consumed in the, the standard American diet. And then when people go you know, ketogenic, if you're not careful, you can have magnesium deficiencies too. But people, um, especially people like myself that work out, you know, when you're doing high intensity interval training and you sweat literally dripping off your face, you have to replenish those sodium losses through sweat as well. So I actually use salt as a pre-workout, um, like one to two grams, uh, about 15, 30 minutes before my workouts. So I kind of look at the individual um, and kind of make an assessment of, of how much sodium they might need, but it could be in certain individuals that work out hard. I mean, it could be upwards of like eight to 10 grams of salt, which is like four or five, you know, six milligrams of, uh, or grams of sodium. Yeah, you know, I, I recently moved out to Phoenix and we get all the heat out here. So like as an endurance athlete, it's, uh, you know, that's one thing I've been more, I, I've just recognized that like it's, I, when I lived in the Midwest and even in Northern California, it was a little easier maybe just to load up your, your meals with salt and things like that and kind of make it work. Whereas now that I'm out here, I'm just a little more on top of either like doing what you mentioned, just taking like a so sodium supplement or actually like just salting some water and, and taking a shot of that before I go into workout. Cause you're just losing so much more of it. Right. And I mean, it's when you're ketogenic, I mean, you can't really over consume it. Your kidneys will just get rid of what you don't need. And so your body's always trying to be in this fine balance. And the other thing I see is people are like, well, I'm drinking liters upon liters of water. And I say, well, I don't care how much water you're drinking, if you don't have the electrolytes to keep the water where it's supposed to be, you can still be chronically dehydrated. So 
Um, you know, that's an important concept too. Yeah, I agree. And, and uh, it's kind of interesting. I, I find that, uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I, I take a lot of salt in personally. I, you know, I train pretty hard myself. And, uh, you know, I, you know, the nice thing is I think appetite kind of regulates that pretty well. I mean, you kind of, you know, I think our body has some pretty good feedback mechanism if we leave it alone and, and just kind of let our, you know, listen to ourselves a little bit. Now for a word from our sponsors. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage breed pork, and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now back to the show. Um, have you, you know, I don't know. I mean, I assume you're, you know, if you're an OBGYN, obviously you're working at a hospital, if you're delivering, you know, delivering babies and whatnot and doing surgeries, are you getting any sort of feedback from people, your colleagues, yay or nay about what you're doing with, with dietary or do they just don't care? What's, what's the situation like there in, in, in Nebraska? So, well, when I first started, they all thought I was crazy. <clears throat> Some of them probably still do. Um, but as I had kind of this personal transformation, I think that it's really hard to deny people's results. And so when I started taking pictures of my labs and obviously people could see, you know, my physical body composition changes, I think it's hard to deny that, that it works. Um, then when I had patients coming in and I was showing some of the colleagues in my office, I'm like, look at this woman's labs. Look at this. We brought her fasting insulin down. We got her off her blood pressure medications. I mean, I think it's hard to deny the results that we're starting to see. And, you know, yes, for a lot of these things, there's not randomized control trials and specifically for things like pregnancy. I mean, you're never going to see a randomized control trial. So a lot of the, you know, it's going to be case reports and anecdotal evidence and things like that. But you know, for me, I'm, I'm young in my career and, you know, there's always phenomenons that happen, you know, in medicine and you can sit around and deny it all you want, but the years that it takes to get a published, you know, trial to filter down to journals, to get on your desk so that Dr. Baker starts adopting these new things, it's, it's not even going to happen in my medical career, you know, and I'm young. So <laughs> I, love, I applaud the American Diabetes Association for coming out with kind of a, well, I'll call it a fluffy statement on like reducing carbs for diabetics, but we're definitely headed in the right direction. You know, some of the data that's come out of Verta Health, but it, in my community, I'm just trying to be the voice of, of the future, essentially. There are people in my community that don't accept it, don't believe in it. You know, my partners that, that just don't understand it enough, a lot of times will send patients to me. Um, I'm, they're few and far between, uh, physicians in my community that are accepting even of just a ketogenic diet. So it's, it's a process. I know you've, I know you've experienced that too. 
Yeah, no, exactly. Hey, I, I, you did, you mentioned fasting insulin because that's, is that something that you typically check in, in the obstetric world? Because, you know, that's something that most general practitioners, they don't really understand or don't do much with. Tell me a little bit about fasting insulin. Yeah. So I don't check it. I don't check it in my obstetrical patients, but in my patients who, you know, have obesity and I think they have insulin resistance, it's definitely something that I follow. So we look at their insulin resistance index we look at their fasting glucose and it's something, you know, that I've looked at in my own biomarkers. It's very interesting because when I trained, we never checked fasting insulin levels. And so um, what's been interesting is when I first started, my fasting insulin was, uh, I can't remember exactly where it started, but I got it down to about a four. And then in January, I did some carb cycling just to see like, let's see what happens with my thyroid and let's see what happens, you know, when I do this carb cycling, because everyone's, you know, saying, oh, for women, add back carbs intermittently for hormone and thyroid health. And my fasting insulin, like almost doubled <laughs> doing this carb cycling, um, my insulin resistance score, like skyrocketed. So it, it's, it's something interesting to follow in patients, you know, just to have an objective, an objective marker. I had a patient who came to me with what sounded like hypoglycemic episodes. She had already seen endocrinology and they gave her a glucometer and her blood sugars were normal. And I just was like, I'm going to check some labs, come back fasting. So she came back the next morning and had a fasting insulin of 276. And I didn't believe it. So I told her, I said, Hey, you know, I want you to do this low carb diet. And I want you to come back in 30 days and we're going to recheck it. And she brought it down to like 140. So, I, and she admitted she wasn't super compliant with her diet, but I think it would be mind blowing to look at some of these patients who have quote unquote, you know, a normal A1C, their normal glycemic and the amount of insulin that their pancreas is putting out just to keep them normal glycemic. And we know that with diabetic patients because most diabetic patients die with a normal blood sugar. They're just on massive amounts of insulin or secreting massive amounts of insulin. Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Joseph Kraft. I don't know if you've heard, uh, you know, he, he in the 1970s, he was a pathologist who looked at so like 14,000, uh, he did 14,000 or glucose tolerance tests and, and found that a significant percentage of those people had dysregulation of insulin secretion. So they were seeing, like you talked about, you know, normal, normal glycemic, but very hyperinsulinemic. And so that's in the background that we don't see it. And there's probably a massive amount of undiagnosed diabetics or pre-diabetics that, that, that have normal, normal glucose right now. So that's something that I think is an important concept to continue to, you know, talk about. Now, the one, one, the one knock I've heard about fasting insulin is it does have some dynamic variability. So from one day to the next, it may, it may change it. But, but when you're talking about 200 versus 10, that's, then you're, then you're, you know, you're, 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 you're doing something, but if it's one day, it's eight and the next day it's four. I mean, it's probably not that big of a deal, but you know, when you're, you know, crazy way out there in a ballpark, then, then those things start to get uh, impressive. I think. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Um, what have you, you know, as far as I know you're doing a lot of stuff on Instagram now, are you getting a lot of, uh, you know, talk, well, talk to me a little bit about your, you said you do consulting because this is kind of an interesting thing because there's a lot of physicians out there. They're doing, you know, your day-to-day -day medical practice and, and you, you're absolutely right. There's no time to do the stuff that really needs to be done when it comes to lifestyle. So how, how are you making that? How are you finding time to do that? I mean, what's going on with the, with the, the, the sort of the consulting on the side and how are you making that work? You, you know, are you saying this is not medical advice or walk me how, how you, how you sort of set that up? 
Right. So, well, part of it is that I'm in women's health. So a, a man can't come see me in my clinic currently. Um, and so that was, that was hard. Um, and then for my own patients, I don't have the, I don't have an hour. I mean, sometimes it takes 45 minutes to an hour to really kind of delve into, you know, the diet and how to do it. I do teach some classes locally. So I've partnered with some business locally to teach classes. And that's a great way because we can get 50 to hundred people in a room at one time, but there are people that, you know, have individual needs or just want that individual support. So I have an online um, business. We do it through, um, you know, application like zoom and we kind of go through their history and then we, we set up a diet. So I help them set up, you know, how many calories, how many macronutrients, this is what you're going to eat, you know, take these additional electrolytes, but yeah, it's, I don't, there's a disclaimer. It's not medical advice. I'm not your doctor. You know, I'm just helping from a nutritional standpoint. I'm in the works of trying to set up telemedicine. So once um, my integrative medicine fellowship is done, my hope is to do integrative medicine consults through telemedicine um, because I think that I could reach far more people that way. But I mean, the American medical system is not set up to help people in this in this way and i i'm far more passionate about it i mean don't get me wrong i love my job i love operating i love delivering babies i don't have any plans to give that up in the near future but um i feel like i've impacted more lives doing you know nutritional consulting you know some days yeah, I can definitely echo that. I mean, I cannot tell you the number of people that I've had that have just, you know, I get messages every day where people are like, you know, my life has completely changed. You know, I was suicidal and now I'm, I've got a normal life again. So it's, it is very rewarding. And then, like I said, hopefully it's, it's encouraging to see more and more physicians. And I, and I, and I see this every day. I see more and more physicians that are kind of saying, Hey, you know, this system's broken. We gotta, we gotta, you know, I went into medicine to help people. And, and I find that, uh, you know, you kind of feel like a cog in the wheel, you know, you're just kind of like grinding through the grind, just, you know, processing these patients through and, and how much difference are you making? I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, in obstetrics, you're delivering healthy babies and doing what you can to do that. But I mean, what are you doing long-term to impact these people's you know, lives? So they don't need a doctor. I mean, hell, we, we, should, yeah. we should, we should make ourselves obsolete. It should be the goal of medicine, I think, you know, except for say acute trauma, you know, childcare and infectious diseases. I don't know that, really you know you know i guess that that's that would be a, a utopia i suppose but uh we're, we're definitely not even that isn't even on the on the the mission agenda i mean right now it's just you know make more technology so you can you can sort of fix more symptoms and i think that's uh, well and for me a lot of a lot of people come to see me because they know they know the way that i live my own life they know you know the way that i practice in my clinic and i don't want to say it's like cherry picking patients but a lot of the patients that come to see me in clinic are highly motivated to do anything to avoid medications, you know, and it, that's great as a physician to have people like that. Um, and then for me, you know, getting them healthy through their twenties and then they're having babies, people that are healthy prior to pregnancy or it's better pregnancy outcomes. You know, we have one of the highest maternal mortality rates out of like any country and we have all this fancy technology and money and it's because the moms are sicker. They're, they're fatter and sicker before they come into pregnancy. And so we see, you know, worse, more maternal morbidity and mortality. So as an OBGYN, yeah, I love nutrition, but at the same time, it also benefits my clinical practice big time, having these patients actually take some ownership, which is, which is the other part, you know, of the broken healthcare system is patients need to take more individual ownership of their health. Nobody should care about their health more than them. Not your doctor, 
not your chiropractor, not your spouse. You have to take on that self-responsibility. Do you find that to be kind of a big hurdle, like even with patients kind of recognizing your approach and, and possibly not not maybe showing up if they kind of know about themselves that they're going to try to take a shortcut, so to speak. But do you find that like with the options that people have available to themselves where they can look at this and say, uh, I could make a big lifestyle change or I could take this pill. And is that like, is that a crossroads that it's, that is very difficult to get over? Or do you see most people are willing to kind of approach it lifestyle first because they recognize if they're introducing some sort of medication, that's kind of, more of a band-aid than it is a, a potential cure? Yeah, I mean, you have to meet patients where they are. You know, it's, they're not all gonna be ready to make these changes. They're not gonna be open-minded about it. Um, and I have had patients where I'm like, have you ever thought about changing your diet and how that might impact some of these symptoms you're having? And some of them are like, what? And some of them aren't willing to make the changes, even if I make that connection for them. You know, they'd rather just, take a birth control pill to regulate their cycle or, or do X, Y, Z, or even like a surgical procedure, you know, so I'm there to do what, you know, what's best for the patient, what that patient chooses as a modality. I'm not pushing this on anybody, but I'm certainly offering it as, as an option for the people that want it, because there are a lot more that don't realize that it's a choice. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of physicians out there that don't realize it's a choice either. And, you know, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, in, you know, I went to medical school, it was 20 some years ago, and I don't know how much it's changed, you know, when you, when you did your training. But I mean, it was really, I mean, you're giving a set of tools, which are largely, you know, procedures, pharma, you know, pharmaceuticals, and then there may be some auxiliary rehab and stuff like that. But for the most part, it's, you know, either a pill or a procedure, or, you know, we don't really have much else we can do. You know, we know about diet and exercise a little bit, but we don't, we don't, we're not trained on that. I mean, it's like when I tell people, if you go to your physician to learn about nutrition or exercise or health in general, you're going to the wrong person because that's not, that's not in our wheelhouse. You know, there's some of us obviously that have made it our business to learn that stuff. And then there, you know, but in general, a physician is not somebody I go to, to think about for health advice. I'm there for some of these when I'm sick and you know, how I can, you know, kind of how I can manage those symptoms. You know, like I said, if, if, if I get in a car crash and my, my femur is sticking out through my thigh, hell yeah, I want to go see a doctor. But if I'm overweight, man, it may not be the best place to go. You know, I, I think because we, you know, we, you know, I see these people in like, you know, cruising around Walmart or the grocery store on their oxygen tank and they're, they're morbidly obese and they're in their little cart. And, and I think that's something that really the healthcare system has almost created those people because we have, we have sort of, you know, sort of, enable that to happen rather than say, Hey, look, why don't we, before you turn into 350 pounds, why don't we prevent you from getting there? You know? And, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, I don't know if you have thoughts on this, on this whole gastric bypass stuff, because, you know, I, you know, as a surgeon, you know, you always hear, you know, heal with steel, you know, that's, that's a motto, you know, let's, let's, let's put some, let's some, put some steel to skin and we can, we can make things better. But I mean, goodness gracious, we're at a point where we're cutting out viable organs out of people because they can't, you know, cause they're just eating the wrong food. Yeah, I had a patient that came in and said she had been evaluated by bariatric surgery and she had to lose, they wanted her to lose like 30 pounds before they would do the surgery. And part of that is just proving that they understand that they're going to have to, you know, calorie restrict and things like that. Well, I'm thinking to myself, and I said this to her, I said, if you can lose 30 pounds, you can lose the next 30 pounds. Like, and she still wanted to go through the surgery. I mean, it's just like, mind-blowing to me like i mean once you've proven that it works like just keep going so yeah i agree with you sean you know sometimes 
you know, and we give people medications and we're improving like the number of years that people live, but they're not quality years. And that's what I tell people all the time is my husband and I were just with our girls yesterday and we drove by um, like a, a nursing home and all the, you know, all these um, older people were kind of lined up outside getting some sunlight exposure. And we kind of looked at each other and we were like, we're going to do everything we can to maintain our independence. Like that is what drives us in life is we want as many years doing as many things as we can. And I mean, we're all dying, right? We're a <laughs> newsflash. Um, but if people could understand that they don't have to live the last 10, 15, 20 years of their life on 20 medications, they're bound to a wheelchair, you know, it's your, your genetics are not necessarily your destiny. You have the ability to influence them through nutrition and exercise and stress reduction and sleep quality and all these other things that, it, that affect our, our DNA and our cells and everything. Hey, tell me a little bit about, cause you said you did, you know, obviously I'm a, I'm a, I'm a red meat carnivore proponent. You said you did that for a while. You still kind of play with it. Tell me about your experience with that. And have you dared to suggest that to any of your patients yet? <laughs> so in November, uh, we decided to just do 30 days of carnivore. Once again, I'm like, I'll do anything for 30 days. Let's just see what happens. And um, the first week I definitely under consumed like just the number of calories I was, that had never happened to me in my life, but I would wake up at like 10 30, 10 45. I'd only been asleep like an hour and I was starving. So the second and third week I increased how much I was eating because basically I was just eating to satiety. And, um, but gosh, we felt really good. We felt really good. And at the end of the month, we had better body composition. I posted the photos on my Instagram, you know, I did before and after measurements and testing and things like that. And I checked my labs and, and then through December, it was it ever since November, it's still been predominantly carnivore, but I, I've had periods where I've added back in, you know, an intermittent salad or some avocados or things like that. And for me, it's just, it's, seriously just texture like it's just boredom you know um because when i eat like a salad i feel bloated um and so for me it's just literally a texture thing but um now we're we're back to carnivore right now so we're three weeks now of doing mostly carnivore again and we feel great um so i think it's hard it does i remember and maybe it was when i started following you but i remember seeing these carnivore people i'd been ketogenic you know like two years, I'm like, oh, I could never do that. That seems really extreme. <laughs> and then here I am eating carnivore. I have actually recommended it to a couple patients. And um, it's usually people with like really severe like GI symptoms where they have all these food sensitivities and allergies. Because I think the reason that so many people see this awesome success with carnivore, it's like the perfect elimination diet. It's very rare to see somebody that's allergic to like beef or chicken, right? But we see people all the time that are allergic to bananas, strawberries, avocados, you know, or they feel like crap. I have tons of patients that are like, well, I'm gluten-free, dairy-free, because that doesn't, you know, sit well with me. Um, but I have, I have had a couple patients and, you know, I said, listen, try it for, you know, 14 days and just see how you feel, like be your own expert, just try it. And if it takes your symptoms away, then clearly we're doing something right. And, you know, at some point they can add back in one thing at a time and see if they, you know, how they respond to it. But I, I have patients that are at the end of their rope and they have tried 
you know, multiple medications, they've seen multiple specialists and nothing has worked. And so I think, you know, at that point, anything is worth trying. Yeah. And I think it does, it does, like you said, it creates that kind of nice clean slate where you can start bringing back like things that maybe you miss the most and just decide and have like a real like clear look is, okay, this is, this is how this specific thing's going to make me feel versus it being kind of muddied when you're just doing a more traditional elimination diet. And, uh, you know, there's some quote unquote, okay food groups in a lot of those that for whatever reason could cause problems in you personally, if you don't try it out. So it's certainly kind of interesting in that, in that shape or form. And, and that's more or less how I have used it to date is, you know, I'll finish, finish like a, a big race or training block and I'll be kind of reducing my activity level for a while and I'll do like a reset on that. And, um, it was pretty eye opening to me when I started bringing stuff back after even shorter bouts of like seven to maybe 14 days, just like, oh, okay, this, I didn't really realize that this specific food group is going to behave the way it does when I eat it. Cause Historically, I had had it for, you know, every day for like weeks on end with a bunch of other stuff. So it's interesting. Yeah. And I mean, there's nothing more, you know, prevalent than like eat your fruits and vegetables, eat your fruits and vegetables. So it sounds crazy amongst, you know, anybody when you bring this up as an idea. But when you think about plants, I mean, we use herbal supplements and things like that for specific reasons in the body to block certain enzymes. You know, like I started using a saw palmetto supplement to try to block progesterone phase acne that I was having issues with. I mean, plants have very specific uses, whether they're good or they're bad in the body, but um, there are, I think, certain individuals that can't tolerate them and it's, it's an option, it's a tool for people. Tell me, you know, I, I think you, are you, you said you're going to be at uh, Paleo Effects or no, not Paleo Effects, KetoCon. KetoCon, uh, yes. In a couple weeks. Are you speaking there? Are you just going to visit or what's going on with that? No, I'm just going for a visit. Uh, visit. Both okay. my husband and I will be down there. So nice. Okay. So wow. that, that's going to be in Austin, Texas. Yeah. I just, they just asked me to come speak and I, I, ha I wasn't going to do it early, but then I, I looked at my schedule and saw, saw that I could. So I'm going to go out there and speak. So. Are you, are you, tell me a little bit about more that you said you're going to be dual boarded integrative medicine. So how did that, how, where did you get that from? So I just have such a passion for preventative medicine. And so I felt, but I felt like some of these other alternative therapies, I just really wasn't well versed. I mean, I think we had like one week in alternative therapies when I was in med school. And if I remember right, all my med school classmates and I looked at each other like, these people are hocus pocus. <laughs> and so <laughs> I thought, you know what, if I'm going to, if I'm going to talk to patients about alternative therapies, I need to have some credentials, you know, behind my name. And so I started looking around, do I do functional medicine? Do I do integrative medicine? And I just felt like in functional medicine, it was a lot of like, take this supplement, take that supplement. Whereas integrative medicine is looking at nutrition, exercise, spirituality, you know, biofeedback, sleep quality. It just looks at kind of like the, the whole pieces of the puzzle. And so it's through the University of Arizona, uh, Dr. Andrew Weil, who's very big in integrative medicine. It's, it's his program that he started. And um, it's, it's been amazing thus far. And it's really opened my eyes to other options for my patients. Um, it's very holistic and, and natural therapies and things like that. But I feel like they still to some degree acknowledge that there's, you know, medicine is here for a reason that, you know, there are certain people that need medicines and surgery and things like that, but let's try everything possible before we move, move that direction. 
And you, I, I would assume you did that, I guess, through correspondence would be my guess. Is that, is that how that works? Or is that? Yeah. So obviously I don't live in Arizona, so yeah. I'm able to maintain my clinical practice here in Omaha. I, um, their campus is in Tucson. So I have to go down to Tucson, um, annually. I have to go, I just went down there in March. So, but everything else I do online, uh, through my professors here, submit assignments, tests, and things like that. Okay. Very interesting. So, um, Tell me, are your kids, what are you doing with your kids? You got three kids. I don't know if they're boys or girls. How are those guys eating? What, I mean, what are you guys doing with those guys to keep them healthy? I have three daughters. Um, they're young, so they're very soon to turn four, six, and eight. And for the first, like, year and – oh, one of them's peeking in here at me right now. <laughs> <laughs> for the first, um, like, year and a half, my husband and I were eating ketogenic and then making them completely separate food. And one night I'm like, this is – crazy. Like, why are we doing this? And, um, and so, and my oldest daughter actually had some GI issues at the time we were seeing a specialist for. And so I was like, okay, in January, like they are going at least gluten-free, sugar-free, like lower carb. So we completely like cleaned out their snack bins and all of this. And now that my husband and I are predominantly carnivore, we're feeding them a lot more, you know, just meat. And then maybe they'll have like a couple berries or a little bit of veggies with it. Um, but they're not eating bread. They're not eating mac and cheese. They're not eating all that crap that they used to eat. You know, they may have it occasionally at school or at a birthday party or something like that. We're not like, you know, total Nazis about it. But um, it's been interesting because as we've made these changes, my oldest daughter now will ask for steak for dinner or last night, my four-year-old fell asleep on the couch during dinner. And when she woke up, she asked for a bowl of hamburger. <laughs> and so I think sometimes as parents, we project onto our kids, what we think they will like, you know, um, I mean, if you go to any restaurant, the kids menu is like mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, or a hot dog. Like those are the things we, things we think are only palatable right? Like to children. Um, and so it's been, it's been a journey. We're making lots of transitions and changes. And it's interesting because I noticed lower carb, lower sugar, their behavior, not that my kids are like misbehaved at all, but I can just tell differences in the way that they feel and act too. Yeah, I mean that's absolutely true, and, and very similar way I feed my kids. I mean, and and they, and my 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 oldest, I've got I've got four of them, so I've got I've got a boy, thirteen, a girl, eleven, a girl, eight, and a, and a boy, six. And you know, thirteen thirteen year old, he's autistic, but I mean, he was last night, Dad, when am I have steak for dinner? So he's he's totally, you know, they they love that. And the unfortunate thing, my daughters particularly, they love whenever I cook a ribeye. I mean, they're up there like pointing to the rib cap and saying they want that part. So I got to give up the best part of the steak to my girls. Cause you know, so I kind of kid around. I almost regret doing that. No, but I mean, that's, I think that's great that, you know, you teach them where nutrition is coming from and then, you know, you don't have to be dogmatic religious about it. You say, this is, this is high quality nutrition, get a lot of that in. And then, you know, you can, you can figure out where the rest falls in after that. And I think that's a pretty healthy approach, you know, at any age, but I mean, you know, the, 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 you're right. I mean, you go to the kids menu at a restaurant and it, I mean, it's like the cheapest food we can give you, you know, it's the cheapest garbage food possible. And so anything off the kids menu is often just awful. And and then, you know, the snacks, and I'm sure you were giving them organic mac and cheese or, you know, all that crap that's out there, you know, it's like, Oh yeah, but it's organic. Oh, yeah, it's organic so crap. Everything. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, like yeah. putting lipstick on a pig. Yeah. It's all a scam. It's, it's kind of hilarious to see that. Well, it is interesting too, when you just see kind of just the, the level of, poor nutrition that is kind of just standard for kids that they don't 
break down and have more issues sooner. And I mean, some do, but and I think we're seeing that more recently, but the fact that sometimes people are getting into their thirties and forties before they're starting to recognize any really, really big like alterations that force them to make a change in some shape or form is, is pretty mind boggling. So when you do have a setup kind of like what you two are doing, where you're kind of making their baseline, what we know is going to be good for them and then let them kind of explore a little bit beyond that if they're still hungry or if they want more, you know, they're probably in such a better position than their, their, their peers at that point that, the likelihood that they'll turn out healthy is probably just that much higher. Yeah. I mean, it's just crazy. Cause like I grew up on school lunch, like a public school school lunch program and we had one choice. So you just like ate that. And my daughter has like five choices at her school, but even when you look at them, I mean, they're not good choices. And then they eat, then they go to the fruit bar and like load up with pears and all these things soaked in, syrup and then she grabs a chocolate milk and I'm just like imagining like just even the sugar content of their lunch it's just crazy are you seeing I mean are you seeing um like you know I mean obviously that you know when the, when the moms have the babies they pass them off to the neonatologist and that's probably the end of what you see with the babies but um let me ask you about fertility because we're seeing I mean my understanding is we're seeing a decline in fertility rates you know throughout the world and even in the United States are you seeing a link between that and diet? And are you seeing women that change their diet and they regain their fertility very often? Well, not only female fertility, but part of the basic infertility workup is doing um, semen analysis. And we're, we're seeing a lot more male factor infertility. There's some really cool studies out there looking at dietary implications and spermatogenesis in men. Um, so that's been very interesting too, to kind of follow that research. But when you look at the reproductive endocrinology literature, a lot of them will stress like a Mediterranean diet for people who are suffering from infertility. So adding in some of those, you know, healthier fats and things like that. So um, for my, it kind of depends why they have infertility. So if it's a patient that's anovulatory, somebody with polycystic ovarian syndrome, they're not releasing an egg then reversing the root cause of that, you know, their insulin, then we, we see restoration of their infertility. The hard part about infertility is about 33% of the time we do laboratory testing and we don't find like a root cause. So clearly there's something else, you know, going on and whether it's just like generalized inflammation or things like that. I mean, I don't know that there's good studies to suggest that a low carb ketogenic diet increases fertility rates, but I have seen a lot of people in the ketogenic community have a lot of surprise pregnancies, <laughs> so <laughs> which we know half the pregnancies in the U.S. are unplanned anyway. But um, I mean, I think that if you're fixing inflammation, balancing hormones, those are the people that are most fertile. Do you have any concerns with women that are on low-carb ketogenics or even carnivorous diets during pregnancy? So I have, I have some patients that, that are, um, like I said, the literature on, if you look, there's like a multi hundred page document on, on recommendations for nutrition and pregnancy. And there's even a statement in there that says in the face of adequate protein and fat intake, carbs are basically non-essential. But then in the summary, they say you should eat at least 150 carbs. Um, pregnancy is basically a diabetogenic state. So the placenta secretes hormones that make the mom more insulin resistant, which is why we do glucose tolerance testing at 28 weeks in the pregnancy. 
with a 50 gram oral glucose tolerance test. Now my recommendation for people, if anyone's listening, that is low carbon pregnancy, I would recommend not doing that test. Um, we almost always will see um, patients fail that test who aren't used to that kind of um, glucose load. I think it was, dark. I think Ben Bickman's wife, he was on a podcast talking about how his wife failed it miserably and refused the three hour test. But my recommendation for those patients is to just actually get a glucometer and just take your blood sugars fasting and two hours after each meal and just prove that they're normal. Um, and so that's what I recommend for my patients that are low carb. Um, I don't recommend like in the middle of pregnancy, like all of a sudden going ketogenic or carnivorous just because of some of the electrolyte imbalances that can happen, which can be you know, dangerous for a pregnant woman. But in patients who are already fat adapted, keto adapted prior to conception, I have no problem with it. And for a lot of them, it really helps curb excess maternal weight gain. That's one of the reasons that a lot of moms pack on a ton of weight is because of this insulin resistance state. Um, and then for breastfeeding, I mean, it's interesting. Babies are essentially in a ketogenic state in the third trimester. They're born. They use ketones a lot to help myelinate their brains. It's part of their neural development, all the healthy fats, the choline. And so, you know, for, for breastfeeding patients, I don't really have an issue with it either. I do have a lot of moms that come to me who ate standard American diet through the pregnancy and then after the baby's out, they're like, okay, I'm ready to go ketogenic. And they're very worried about what could happen with their milk supply. Um, and so in these patients, we really decrease the carbs like very slowly. We try to maintain um, adequate caloric intake. But even amongst breastfeeding moms, I've actually had some moms say they see an increase in milk supply. I think it's probably from all the good protein and fats, but um, I, don't, I don't have an issue with it. Yeah, I mean, and that's kind of similar to what, I, what I've seen and actually said to people who have asked me about that. I said, you know, don't drop it in the middle of pregnancy because it's too, too radical. You might have to slowly transition over if you're going to do it then. But certainly, uh, you know, there's been a lot of women, you know, you think about it, there have been all kinds of historic societies where they ate that way and had kids for, for millennia without, you know, any real deficiencies or anything like that. Um, well, I was going to ask one other thing about the kiddos and the pregnancy stuff. Um, you, do you find that, that a ketogenic or a low carb diet requires any additional supplements outside of the standard prenatal vitamins that a woman might take? I know there's some concerns around folate per, perhaps being, uh, being an issue. So I recommend that they be on a, like a whole food prenatal. So that has actual activated forms like methylfolate and things like that. I, I don't like people to guess, uh, you know, in pregnancy. So I, I still recommend even if they're like, my diet's amazing, doc, I still recommend them being on a prenatal just so that we know we're meeting those minimum requirements. Um, they just recently increased the recommendation for choline in pregnancy. So all the more reason to be eating things like eggs and liver and salmon roe and all these good things that are high in those B vitamins, high in choline, um, because that is an important part of the development of the baby. So, you know, take the prenatal, do the best you can with your diet and, you know, that's, that's all you can do. Hey, I want to, I want to clarify a point that you made and maybe ask about the rationale behind this, because you said that pregnancy kind of mimics a insulin resistance state. What is the, why is that? Why did humans develop that way? What is the supposed, is there an advantage for that particular situation during pregnancy? Why, what, what do you think the evolutionary rationale for that might be? Well, I think it's, I think it's so that you can shuttle more nutrients across the placenta to the baby. I mean, you're essentially trying to create more glucose in the bloodstream so that it can cross the placenta. 
Um, now insulin doesn't cross. So that's the issue is if you get somebody that's already insulin resistant, then they get pregnant and they're hyperglycemic, you have loads of glucose that's getting shuttled across that placenta. The baby has to put out its own insulin. And then after the baby's born, that's one of the most common reasons for a baby of a diabetic mother to get a NICU admission is for hypoglycemia. They also have lots of electrolyte disturbances that happen. So I think evolutionary, it's just so that that growing fetus has an abundance of, you know, available energy sources. Yeah, there's, it's kind of interesting. If you go back in the evolutionary literature, they talk about, you know, developing this sort of diabetic state as an evolutionary advantage during times of starvation or, you know, ice age, because we're talking about, you know, we might not have had access to certain foods and therefore developing the state allowed us to maintain, uh, blood glucose supply, particularly for that reason, for, for, for having babies. And so these babies need to have nutrition to grow. But then you're talking about if the mothers are just overdoing it, then the babies are like overwhelmed with glucose and they're basically kind of, they're kind of marinated in glucose. They're kind of, they're kind of, they're coming out of the womb already. No one is starving in America. (laughs) Yeah. They're coming out of there. You know, you see these, what, nine pound, 10 pound babies coming out to which, you know, people are like, Oh, look at my great big baby. And you're probably at the same time going, you're, you're probably horrified, but they're, you know, some of these cultures, they, they want their babies to be as fat as big as possible. And it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of an interesting uh, phenomenon. Yeah, I delivered a 12 pound, 12 pound, 14 ounce baby earlier this year. <laughs> I, I'm hoping that was a C-section. <laughs> it was. <laughs> but I, I mean, I've seen 10, 11 pound babies come out vaginally, so. Ouch. Yeah, well, anyway, good for goodness, goodness. More power to the mom for that one, I guess. I don't know. Um, let me try and think out what are the, what other things you think that, that women don't know about that should know? I mean, it doesn't have to be necessarily in the obstetrical world, but, uh, you know, I, cause I, you know, I, I saw, you know, I don't know how many little women, women's hips I've fixed. You know, these, all these little 75, 89 year old women are in there and they're just, I mean, they're just frail as can be, their hips are breaking, you know, you know, and as soon as that happens, they got, you know, they're about a year left. I mean, that's for most people. I mean, that's, that's kind of the, you know, it's one of those terminal things, kind of a terminal event and their quality of life spirals down. But how do we maintain, uh, you know, I mean, so what are your thoughts on for bone mass? I mean, are you getting into osteoporosis prevention with things like uh, selective estrogen receptor modulators and bisphosphonates and any of that stuff? Or, or what are your thoughts with regard to for protecting women from, from fragility fractures as they, as they go through menopause and, 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 and onward? Yeah, so I screen for osteoporosis. And most women, you know, um, with risk factors get early DEXA scanning, but otherwise patients, you know, age 65 will, will typically get a DEXA scan to look at bone mineral density. Um, I don't treat a ton of osteoporosis and osteopenia, but some of the best things for, for building and maintaining bone mineral density is hormone replacement therapy. So estrogen and testosterone are great. Um, the medicines, you know, bisphosphonates and things like that come with a massive amount of side effects. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've seen patients with lots of side effects and lots of issues from those medications. Um, and so for me, you know, I come from a preventative strategy. So your women that are thin, you know, thin or more frail to begin with, or a low estrogen state, those are the people most at risk or your smokers most at risk for osteopenia and osteoporosis. And so working with those patients while they're in their forties and fifties, you know, getting adequate estrogen, testosterone levels, doing resistance training, those are the best things they can do for their bone health. You know, what we've been telling women is like eat dairy, take calcium, you know, it's good for your bones when really it's 
vitamin D3 and K2 and resistance exercises that are far more important, most people are getting adequate, you know, dietary calcium. I would add protein to that list. I think that's another thing yeah. that uh, we see. And, I, you know, it's kind of interesting. I, again, anecdotally, I've seen a number of people, particularly women now, have shown me their DEXA scans and actually have improved it by, by, by diet. So adding more protein in the diet, particularly red meat in the diet. And that's been, I think, pretty eye-opening to me because even as an orthopedic surgeon, I mean, and again, I look in the literature and there, there's really not much about protein mm -hmm. uh, protecting your bones. And we've got to realize that our bones are you know, a protein scaffold for which minerals are deposited on, but the, the, the core of it is all protein. And so this goes back to another thing. And you said uh, one pound per gram or one gram per pound is kind of what you, you target for yourself. And, and I guess, presumably your patients, does that change with age in your mind? Well, I think, I, I mean, I think as it kind of depends, you know, as lean body mass goes down there, it depends how active they are, but there tends to be, you know, less of a protein requirement. But I also find that, you know, you look at more elderly populations, uh, they tend to eat less meat and less protein. So, and, and sarcopenia is a major cause of morbidity amongst this, this population. And, you know, what we see is actually even fat deposition in the muscle. Um, and so like sarcopenic obesity. And so my, dietary approach, I, I kind of tell people prioritize protein, fill with fat, count your carbs. That's kind of my easy, you know, three-step rule. And so I think even as you age, prioritizing protein is important. At what threshold, I, you know, I'm not entirely sure, you know, for those, for those people, but because their, their activity level just isn't the same as, as it is, you know, of, of a younger person, but yeah, we seem to see a decline in the ability for us to, to properly absorb protein in the GI tract. Some people advocate for higher levels as we get older. And what you sound, what you said with the prioritized protein to fill fat and count the carbs, uh, very, sounds very similar to what Ben Bickman taught us a while back on, on our podcast. And so I think that's, uh, that's a pretty good strategy for the most part. Yeah, I mean, the, the sarcopenic obesity, that is real. I, I, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I, I, you know, I, I had to operate on these sort of really fluffy women you get through all this, you know, layers and layers of fat and finally get to some bone and the bones like cornbread. I mean, you've got this, you know, this weak shell surrounded by all this, all this obesity. And that, that is, you know, I mean, I think it's just a new phenomenon in uh, human, in humanity. We, we've got I wish this, people uh, could see what we see as surgeons <laughs> on the inside of bodies. I mean, it is insane. Just the amount of, you know, I, I obviously don't operate on joints, but I operate in the, you know, the abdominal and pelvic cavities and just the deposition of fat around people's organs. I mean, from the outside, maybe they don't even look that big, but you get inside and you're like, wow, um, it's, it's scary. Yeah, when you get in there and the subcutaneous fat layer is, you know, nine, 10, 12 centimeters thick. I mean, that's, I mean, you know, you sit there and you can't even, it's almost impossible to do it. It's, it's difficult to do what you gotta do. You gotta bring in these giant retractors and, you know, it's just, it, it, it makes it challenging. I mean, you know, not to whine, but I mean, it's, it's certainly, uh, you know, it's not a healthy place to be, you know, in or inside or outside the operating room. That's, that's absolutely for sure. Uh, Jamie, let people know where they can find you. Let us know anything else you want to share with us. Yeah. So I'm on Facebook and Instagram, Dr. Fit and Fabulous. And then I have a website, drfitandfabulous.com. I, um, yeah, I'll be at KetoCon, so I can't wait to connect at KetoCon, and then I do have some other speaking engagements coming up in the next year. Some of them I can't really um, talk about yet, 
but there's some super exciting things happening in this space and I'm just so excited to contribute to the conversation. We need more medical providers if you're out there, if you're listening, um, to, to get behind us because you know, we need these changes in, in medicine and in America. So thanks for doing what you do, both Zach and Sean. Yeah, I mean, and that's a great sentiment. It's not going to happen by people standing on the sidelines and watching. You know, all of us need to get up there. And if we want to, we want to see a change. We got it. You know, it's like I said, I think it's, was it, was it, was it Gandhi that says, be the change you want to see or something like that? Or yes, something, something be the like change that. you want to see in the world. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's time. You got to step up. And so I appreciate seeing more and more folks doing that. Zach, any, anything else before we, we I know, because we got, I know you're probably, I hear your little kiddos in the background and then we got we to get another yeah. podcast going. So They were watching a movie and now clearly their movie's over. <laughs> <laughs> that might be a good time to, to stop. But thank you so much, Jamie, for coming on the show. Uh, we'll get your uh, Facebook, Instagram, webpage stuff put to the show notes. So listeners want to go check out what Jamie's up to. Those will be there. Um, but otherwise, thanks for coming on. Thank you, guys. Hey, folks. Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.